a lot of times what happens in church is that we're going to sit down and go, okay, what do we believe? And the pastor sequesters himself in his office with a yellow legal pad and an ink pen goes, here's what we believe in our church. And he writes down a bunch of stuff. And uh, he sits down with everybody else's statements of faith and writes little branches off of it. I'm not going to do that. Um, the church has been praying the Apostles' Creed since the second century. Okay, well, seems like it stretches pretty far back there. We don't have to fight about the fact that it's been done for nearly 1,900 years. Now, we may have some stuff in here we don't get. Like, for instance, we're going to talk tonight about conceived fourth line. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, fifth line, born of the Virgin Mary. We have a lot of people that they got a lot of trouble with that. How is it possible that Jesus is born of a virgin? We're going to deal with that a little bit tonight. I'll tell you another one way down near the bottom. Uh, sixth line from the bottom. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. I got a message from a longtime supporter this morning that goes, man, I love this Apostles' Creed stuff. Really hope you explain the, I, the Catholic Church because I don't believe that line. That was their response. He goes, I don't believe that line in the Creed. I want to pray the Creed, but I can't pray that line. And I said, hint, hint, little c. Little c, not big c. This prayer precedes big c, Catholic. This is Catholic Universal. This is the church at large. That's our way of saying, I believe the church is bigger than my church. I believe the church is bigger than the garden. I believe the church is bigger than just my denomination. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church means the church of Jesus Christ. Different tongue, different skin color, different countries under different flags. I don't have an exclusivity on the church. So that's, what that, that's what that means. We'll preach that. We'll get there. It's a great sermon. It's great to see the church is bigger than me and bigger than you and bigger than all of us. And so you can struggle with all that stuff. That's fine. Struggling with it's okay. You can even drop out when we pray it out loud. If, you, if there's a line you go, I just can't say that out loud. That's okay. That's okay. Drop out. I'm not going to get mad at you. I, but what we'll find is that when people come in and want to make a profession of faith, this is their opportunity. When we get to the end of a sermon and say, let's make our confession of faith and we pray the creed, you're going to see people who come in and don't know Christ that are going to come into your midst to be loved by you, to be introduced to Jesus by you, that might not pray that prayer the first week. And they might not pray that prayer the second week. And then they can mumble a line or two of it. And then the faith of that, the reality of that starts to become real until it becomes something that they do. And hopefully such a prayer and such an attitude will lead them to the table. Not our table, but the Lord's table. All right? So keep, your, keep this or, or don't. I hope you will. Um, we'll eventually add a copy of the Nicene Creed to it so that we uh, have an understanding of the, of the other great creed of the early church. Um, and we'll continue to sort of work on this as we go through over the next several weeks, uh, all the way up to Advent, because we will probably break away from the creed when we get into Advent, because I very much want us to focus on the arrival of the Lord Jesus at Nativity. And so when we get to December, we will preach the Advent calendar up into Nativity, because we want to have as close as we can in that thin space, an encounter with what, the, what humanity was looking for in the arrival of Jesus and how that applies to us today because it very much applies to us as we anticipate the arrival of Jesus. Okay. Well, if you have a Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. In a reading that will very much sound like, admittedly, very much sound like a Christmas sermon. <laughs> because when you talk about conceived by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, 
and being born of the Virgin Mary, you are talking about the very essence of the nativity story, the fact that Jesus Christ is born into a fallen, sinful world. He's born as God. He's born as man. All of the things that we have been a, a, a foundational tenet of our faith. One of the reasons that it is a foundational tenet of our faith is because it was one of the foundational tenets of the Apostles' Creed. Because from the very early time, the church began to emphasize the arrival of Jesus as conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And the early church felt like that was worth our attention in regards to our faith. We don't skip it. In other words, we could have just said, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And then just jump straight to, He suffered under Pontius Pilate. We could have skipped His birth entirely, but by skipping His birth, not only do we skip a chunk of two of the four Gospels, we skip the very understanding of the hypostatic union of Christ. A big phrase that simply means in layman's terms, Jesus is fully divine and fully human at the same time. Two individuals in union losing nothing. So Christ as the divine loses nothing in becoming Christ the man. He doesn't lose being divine. And in Christ the man, he doesn't lose, uh, or, or the other way around, he doesn't lose the manliness, the humanity, the mortality in the fact that he and the Father are one. Well, my mind's blown. Hypostatic union, I, don't, I can't even imagine that. Great, is what I say to that. Great, if that overwhelms you, welcome to the seed of great faith to say that God can do this, that if I believe that God was man and is man, then the cross takes on a new meaning for me. It is God dying as me. And it takes on new meaning when I see Jesus functioning in the earth because he's not some robot moving around as God, masquerading in flesh. He's not really a man. He's actually God. No, he's man and God fully at the same time. Then I realize Jesus functions in faith in much the way that I must function in faith. And these are great challenges for us as believers. Let's read from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Look at that phrase, found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The creed says he is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about a sexual union. We're not talking about conceived as if the Holy Spirit was the father and Mary is the mother, but conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and then you have to consider that within the context of how they understood the story. That's our setup. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means 
God is with us. Spirit conceived, virgin born. What does that mean and why do we care? Well, I'm saved because Jesus died on the cross for me. I'm forgiven because he raised from the dead. You're right. If you didn't know anything about the virgin birth or the Holy Spirit conception, your salvation doesn't revolve around the nativity. It doesn't revolve around those understandings of Jesus, uh, of Jesus or his chronology or his biography. But it's important because it makes his birth both special and real. It's special in that he's conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's real in that he's born of Mary. Mary is the first human name in the creed, not the last one but the first human name in the creed. And thus Jesus becomes both special and real. True God, what what one of our church fathers called, Jesus Christ is true God and true man. And in being true God and true man, he had to become fully human in order to share his full divinity. Now, I told you a moment ago it's important that the Holy Spirit does the conceiving because that points to a greater narrative. Let me explain what I mean. One of the things that I've talked to you about a lot over the years is that there is a narrative flow to the Bible in which the context is trying to tell a story that does not often stand out on the surface. you got to dig a little bit. It's there. They're not trying to play code with you, but they're understanding things through a different lens than you are. And one of those is the barren woman narrative. I don't know if you've noticed it, but there are a lot of barren women in the Old Testament. And what I mean by barren women are women who can't bear children. For one reason or the other, they just can't get pregnant. Now, what we've learned through modern biology and science is that throughout history, it was not always women who couldn't get pregnant. It was oftentimes men who couldn't get the woman pregnant, but no one ever considered the fact that maybe it was the man that was having trouble in this relationship. So the narrative was always the woman couldn't get pregnant. The woman couldn't get pregnant. So I'm not here to argue the biology. Odds are a lot of these stories, it was the guy. Something was up. I don't know. God knows. We leave that in his. But that's not the point of those stories. The point of the stories was not, boy, women have problems. Or if we could figure this out, we could change, you know, fertility rates among women. The point of the narrative was that there was always an an equal correlation between fertility and favor. And that's how they told the stories. So if there was no flocks in the field, no fruit on the vine, that was an allegorical way of saying there's a famine. Okay, No flock, no fruit, famine. No sons, starvation. And they equated it spiritually. So if they're not having any sons, if they're not bearing children, then there's no future. And it was their way of saying one domino leads to the other one. And so the story of barren women was to show the miraculous power of God to to put springs in your desert, to bring oasis to the middle of your wastelands. And the illustration would be like a barren woman, a woman whose whole purpose was to have children and she couldn't. Like Like a piece of property that's supposed to bring forth an orchard, but you can't get anything to grow. This is how they would tell those stories. You can't get anything to grow. And you're starving. And you need food. And you're planting seeds every day. And there's never a harvest. And the allegory is, the man and the woman are having relations and there's no babies. And the, he's planting seed, but he's not getting a crop. And they go, this is famine. This is a problem. So the Bible keeps repeating that story. And then it'll inject miracles. Baby is born. And the story is meant to say, That every time there's a desert, 
we turn to God, and deserts are not just deserts, understand? They're stresses and depressions and heartbreak and loss and confusion. And we turn to God and we believe for a miracle. And God in His gracious goodness and His favor blesses our desert with an orchard. Or the woman gets pregnant. That's how they told the story. The woman gets pregnant. Remember Abraham. And he has Sarah. And Sarah's too old and she can't have babies. And so Abraham sleeps with Hagar, the young woman, and has a baby. Abraham's an example of the fleshly answer to the barren problem. The narrative is trying to tell you that Sometimes you lose patience waiting on God and you turn to your own devices. You turn to your own Hagar. And when you turn to your own Hagar, you might very well get a a baby. You might very well get an orchard to grow in the middle of that. But there's something wrong with the apples. (laughs) That's the point of that narration. You go, something wrong with the product. It just doesn't taste the same if it's you as it does if it's favor, if it's God, if it's His miracle, if it's His goodness. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are fascinating because in three, in a father and a son and a grandson, all three times their wives are barren. So there's a narrative flow to the story. Abraham is an example of what happens when you try to make it work on your own. You get Hagar. Isaac comes along and Rebecca can't have a baby. So Isaac has a prayer meeting with God and he begs God to let his wife bear a child. And she does. It's, it's simple. Just pray. Boom, here comes the child. And the narrative in that story seems to be that you, if you will step away from functioning only in your flesh and you'll let God do it, watch what He will do. And so there's a contrast between the way Abraham did it and the way Isaac did it. Well, then here comes Jacob. And as if the story wants to show us that we don't always learn our lesson, he has two wives. <laughs> One of them he loves. One of them he doesn't get much out of. The one he loves can't have babies. The one he doesn't get much out of can't stop having babies. (laughs) And the narrative flow then seems to show us a little bit of both sides. And that once he fully embraces who he is, then the fertility opens. These stories go on and on. Samson's mom is this way. Samuel's mom is this way. Um, John the Baptist's mom is this way infertile, can't have a child, and the narration keeps bringing us to this. And then comes Mary. And as you watch the flow of these stories, what happens as you get into the Jesus story is after Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, then Jesus is born of a virgin, the ultimate barren woman. By the way, virgin is pointing to the ultimate barren woman because she's never even been with a man. And therefore, she's not only not, a, she's not, not able to have kids because she isn't getting pregnant. She's not able to have kids because she isn't even doing what you have to do. Are you following me? Yes. The story's bringing us to that. And there's no more barren women. This is amazing to me. Barren woman, barren woman. I just named you six. There's more in the Bible. But I named you six. And then you get to... Mary, the virgin, and there's not another story in the New Testament of a barren woman requesting God give her pregnancy. 
Now, does that mean there's never been another barren woman? No, that's not what it means. But the narration is trying to tell us something. That when Jesus arrives, we're at the end of the barrenness. That Christ is the end of the story. When Jesus is born... We aren't living in a world of barrenness. I need the miraculous. I'm going to do this on my own. In Christ, he's the ultimate birth. So when we say he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin, we're saying more than a historical event. We're putting a capstone on an old story that says up until Jesus, there was this going on and this. Jesus becomes the end of that narrative device. No more. So barren women give birth as a sign that God's purpose is fulfilled and Mary becomes the culmination of the ancient theme of the barren woman who conceives. Because Mary says to the angel Gabriel, and Luke brings this out, Matthew and Luke both bring this out, Luke brings it out even better in a way because Mary says to the angel Gabriel, I've never even slept with a man. Gabriel says, that's okay. What's about to be done in you is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice the angel doesn't say, that's okay. Uh, The Holy Spirit will take care of the the lack of you sleeping with another man. The the angel just skips right over that. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do. The Holy Spirit's going to implant in you exactly what it is that you need. And at the end of that, Mary says, amen. This is a little freebie, by the way. Little side note. Okay? Little freebie. Gospel of Luke has Gabriel showing up to two women, to two, to two people in the first chapter of Luke. Gabriel shows up to Zacharias, Elizabeth's husband. And he says to Zacharias, your wife is going to have a son. And you're going to name him John. And Zacharias goes, mm, that's impossible because my wife's really old. And she doesn't, he doesn't say it that way, but he kind of does. He goes, she's past the year. You know what that means? She's past childbearing years. They didn't call it menopause, but she's through it, all right? And Zacharias goes, this can't happen. And the angel goes, okay, you're going to be mute for six months. You're going to be mute. Now, you're going to be mute till the baby's born. I'm not going to let you speak again until the baby's born because you doubted. And then the same angel goes to Mary and says to Mary, oh, highly favored among women. You are going to bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus and he shall be Emmanuel, God with us. And she says, now, I've never even slept with anyone. And he goes, that's okay, the Holy Spirit's going to do this. And she says, so be it unto me. You know what so be it unto me is in the Hebrew? Amen. So you can meet your miracle with, I don't know about this. Or you can meet your miracle with, amen. And the result, of, I don't know about this, God shuts Zacharias' mouth, not as punishment, but so that the doubt-filled Zacharias won't plant his doubt in anybody else. And so his mouth is shut because he has power in his tongue, and God doesn't need this guy out here going, I don't know about this. I mean, I saw the angel. He said, we knew. John's a silly name. Nobody in my family's named John. I don't know why I would name John. John was a silly name for him because nobody in his family's named John. Because when he tells them, I'm naming him John, everybody goes, nobody in your family's named John. They didn't name, they didn't just pick names out of a magazine, you know, like I saw this on a TV show. I'll name my kid this. They didn't do that. I know they didn't have TV shows, but (laughs) even if they had, I don't think they're picking names off TV shows. You get my point? He says, silence. 
mutes him so that he can't spread, disseminate his doubt. And then there's Mary. And when she says amen, she writes a song in Luke chapter 1 called Mary's Magnificat where she rejoices in the Lord. Her, the lyrics to her song are in your Bible in Luke chapter 1. So when he refuses the amen, his, he goes mute so he can't infect anybody else with his negativity. When she says amen, she's given a glorious song and an anointing that overspreads her. So there's a joy burst out of it. So this is the side note. Learn what to amen. You know? Like when God speaks something in your midst and, you, and it agrees with your spirit, amen it. Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be you screaming amen and yelling it. What I mean is come into agreement with it. I agree with that, Lord. Yeah, but that's going to cost you. You're going to have to wrestle a little bit. You go, that's okay. I'm wrestling with a guy that loves me. I'm wrestling with God. He's got me. If he pops my hip out of socket, he'll give me a cane. I don't, I don't know how I'll walk this out, but I'll walk this out with a new name if I have to. I come into agreement with it. The last thing I want to do is confront the miraculous with my negativity, my disagreement. Say, God, I don't think you're able to do this. Because of this, because of this, because of this. I don't need to put my reasons in front of God. Right? So, it's ve- so the virgin birth story becomes essential for us as we move forward, but it also becomes essential for the Bible and for our understanding of what's going on in the Bible. Now what happened not long into our church history is the church began to venerate Mary. Okay, And we put a capital V on the word virgin. Notice I didn't put a capital V on the word virgin. Because I'm not venerating Mary as my salvation. And here's why. Because Christ alone is the answer for our sin. Christ alone is our righteousness. Christ alone is our salvation. It doesn't mean we don't honor the lives of saints. It doesn't mean we don't pay attention to the teachings of the early church. Or that we don't respect the foundations of our fathers. Orthodoxy is understanding that there is an accepted set of standards and beliefs that have been vetted throughout centuries by people who come before us. We tip our cap in respect and we nod to those who have argued things out bigger than us. We don't always have to see eye to eye on it, but we do respect it. So I respect the role Mary plays and Peter plays and Paul plays and James and John play, but I do not see them as the source of my salvation because they are not the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's why I don't venerate Mary pray to the saints. I don't lose my mind over people who, whose Christian custom is praying to saints or uh, seeing angels in a different light than I do. I don't have to come into lockstep with the way people interpret their own faith and the things that they do. And I don't have to call them heretic. And I don't have to toss my Bible at them. And I don't have to reject fellowship with them. Okay? It's not about lining up all of the things and seeing where we agree and where we disagree. I, I don't see those saints or those apostles or Mary as the source of my salvation. I don't have scriptural precedent to see them as the source of my salvation. But I do honor the fact that Mary said amen when almost no one would have said amen. I honor the fact that the angel showed up and said to her what he had never said to another human. You are highly favored among women. So I better honor that and say, well, maybe I could learn something from her. She's not my savior, but maybe I could learn something for how to respond to the miraculous, to how to express my joy. Maybe I can learn from Mary and John too at the wedding of Cana when Mary comes to Jesus and says, son, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, mom, what is that to me? And Mary doesn't get mad and huffy 
She just walks over to the leader of the party and says, that's Jesus. Whatever he says to you, do it. And then she vanishes from the story. And Jesus turns around and goes, hmm, fill those water pots with water. And I think Mary's over there going, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the point being is Mary, Mary, the only words we have of hers after the nativity are, whatever he says to you, do it. That's her last words in the Bible. Pretty good advice. So I honor Mary's advice. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Whatever Jesus says to you in prayer, do it. Whatever Jesus says to you in your life, do it. And by the way, if what you think Jesus is saying to you doesn't sound like what Jesus would have said in the Gospels, don't amen that. All right? You don't get to do this just any way you want to. This is what we said a minute ago. You don't just get to do this any way you want to. Well, Jesus told me to do this, and yet it's violent and hateful and covenant-breaking. You don't get to slap Jesus' bumper sticker on all of the things that you come up with that you say you heard in a private place. It's got to look like Jesus. It's got to sound like Jesus. It's got to be in the spirit of Jesus. And if it is, amen it. Say yes to it. Whatever he says to you, do it. So I honor Mary. And the fact that she leaves me with the greatest piece of advice, honestly, I've ever had in my life. And I've used that piece of advice over and over and over again. What are you saying to me? Do it. I'm in this room tonight because of the advice Mary gave at the wedding in Cana. And I'm not even exaggerating. I'm in this room because Mary put in my spirit by, in John 2, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. And I'm trying to live my life by that. To go, whatever he says to me, do it. That's good advice. I don't have to argue. I don't have to fight. I don't have to figure it all out. The end of my barrenness is in that. The end of my lack of productivity is in that. The end of my desert place is in that. Living water is in that. Whatever he says to you, do it. So after we venerated Mary, the, it got worse Then. Then we created theologies where Mary wasn't even human. And we come up with the Immaculate Conception, which is not, by the way, Jesus' conception. The church doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is Mary's conception. So then we had Mary not even conceived of natural means, but conceived of the host. We don't have that in the Bible. So I don't, I don't teach Immaculate Conception. Um, again, I'm not throwing rocks at people, getting all mad at people's theology. I'll just leave it there. I don't... It's not the way that I see the story or perceive the story. I see Jesus as the Immaculate One. Jesus as the only Immaculate One. In a way, when the creed was codified, it was a pushback from the early church against those who were already starting to venerate Mary because it showed the conception power being by the Holy Spirit and that Jesus was a real person. That's the reason the Apostles' Creed threw Mary in. Because there was a teaching in the first couple of centuries of the early church that Jesus wasn't a real human. That he was just a spirit. This is called Gnosticism or Marconianism. And in that early church, there was a side, there was a big fight going on for a couple hundred years in the early church over that one issue. Seems odd to us now. That, that's the issue they fought about. A, it could be a pretty big issue. And so the Apostles' Creed went, we got, we're going to put this human woman in here because we really believe that Jesus was actually a person. 
He wasn't some mist that floated around. Some people thought they saw him. But now we can't prove it. And was he even actually human? They go, it was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. It's our way of saying he was a real person. He was both divine and he was spirit. Before I land, before I finish, I want to address one thing that you'll find when you study this out, when you go into your commentaries or into your books. The scripture said in verse 25, look, I'm sorry, verse 23, Matthew 1, we read this a moment ago, but I'll read it again. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call him Emmanuel. That word virgin is in your Bible because your New Testament writers were quoting the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay? The Greek translation of Isaiah 7.14 is, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. But Isaiah wasn't written in Greek. Isaiah was written in Hebrew. It was translated into Greek. The original Hebrew word in Isaiah 7.14 is the same Hebrew word as young woman. So some of your translations namely the NRSV and others, will say, when you go back to Isaiah, will say, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. Now, if you don't realize what's happening, you'll get all mad at your translation, fold it up, throw it across the room, and call them all a bunch of devils because they took the word virgin out. But what they're doing is they're translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into English rather than Greek into English. And my point there is that in Hebrew, it's young woman. In the Greek, it's virgin. When you get to the New Testament, they used the one they wanted. They used the Septuagint, the word for virgin. But the connection is not trying to walk the prophecy, is not trying to link the prophecy directly to Isaiah, but, but to the understanding that this birth is miraculous. And so the word virgin is used. So if you struggle with, can a virgin... Here's my thoughts on this. If you struggle with can a virgin conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can't help you to believe that. And I'm not going to try. But I don't have a problem believing the virgin conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit because I believe Jesus actually resurrected from the dead. So if you say you're crazy that you believe a virgin bore a son, I go, well, wait till you hear my real faith. <laughs> That's me. I'm just going to wait till you hear what I really believe. I actually believe he really died. Like his heart stopped beating and he was dead. And then he got a brand new body. Not a resuscitated corpse. A brand new body. A glorified Jesus came out of the tomb. Not the same Jesus that even went in. Ooh, can you believe that? That's what I believe. That's why I follow Christ. To this day, I'm a disciple of a resurrected Jesus. So if you think that virgin thing's big, wait till you hear about Easter. That's, that's, my, that's my personal belief. If you think the virgin birth is big, so if you think Christmas is something, wait till the springtime, baby. We're going to roll that stone away. Three days later, Jesus comes out. And yes, I'm not exaggerating. I buy this thing. I believe this Christ is alive, and that is the impact on my life, and that is the, the very source of my faith. Let me close you at John 15, 5. Let me give you one Jesus verse, because how appropriate is it? To land with our foot firmly in the words of Jesus. John chapter 15, verse 5, and this speaks to our readings tonight about the vine and the vine dresser. I am the vine, 
You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Why do I land on this verse? It's not really to compliment the lectionary, but it works. I didn't even actually think about it until I'd already had this verse ready for this sermon that it dovetailed beautifully with the lectionary. So blame that on the Holy Spirit. I don't believe in just blind luck when it comes to that. So blame that on the Holy Spirit. I use this verse because I want you to see that in Christ, our entire existence is to bear fruit because we're in Him. He's the end of the barrenness. When we put the power, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, the end result is us, the virgin, the barren, incapable of having anything produced. That's, a, that's the point. In Him, fruit comes out. Our call is fruit, not work. You are not called to work. You are called to bear fruit. Will works come out of us? Absolutely, because work's going to come out of people that care about what they do. Like if you, if you have an inheritance and you are king over a kingdom, you're going to work for that kingdom because you want to take care of it. But your call is fruitfulness. Spirit-conceived, virgin-born, that's Jesus. But in a way, it's still all of us in that the Spirit conceives in us or seeds in us an idea, a hope, a passion, a dream. And like the virgin, we are incapable of bringing that dream to pass. We cannot do this on our own. What God is asking us to do in this hour is impossible. I love Chuck's prayer to start us off tonight that I couldn't have imagined what God would do to get us here. And I can't imagine what he's going to do next. You know why we can't imagine it? Because we don't have the power to do that. We just don't have the capacity to do it. He's asking too much of us. You know what has happened? The power of the Holy Spirit has conceived inside of a virgin. And I don't mean that in sexual terms. I mean that in incapable. I can't do this that you're asking me to do. Because that's okay. I've conceived it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that will do it inside of you. Now it's your chance to say, this isn't going to happen, or to say amen. Like it's your chance in your own life to go, that's impossible. We can't pull that off. It'll just be a disaster. We don't know what we're doing. We don't have this. We don't have that. We can't do that. What are we? Or, and I hope that just gets muted because that, that just needs you know, silence. Or we can say, amen. I believe the power of the Holy Spirit has conceived something in me. I'm impossible to bring it forth on my own, but I say amen to it. And out of that comes a joyful song. Amen. 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 Let's pray our Christian faith. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. 
Amen. I've been praying this creed for a while now in this season of my life. I do, I, God is my witness, I can't pray it calmly anymore. I, I just, I can't pray it in my, without feeling an excitement in my spirit about landing my foot on who I believe. I've spent so much of my Christianity working on what I believe been in fights and arguments and wore myself out, nearly quit more than once. Just, I don't know. I don't know what we're supposed to do. You know, just, I mean, you get to there. It's just kind of grumbly. What are we going to do? I can't do this anymore. You can't make everybody happy anyway. Like you try to do this and they get mad at you and you try to do this and they don't follow you. (laughs) There's been a peace in me to go, I believe. God the Father, Almighty. And just marinate in it for a little bit. Just watch what happens.